to the International House of Horrors. Valued guests, and welcome back to the International House of Horrors podcast, your sanctuary of spooky for all things terrible, horrible, brutal, bloody, gory, and the macabre. I am one of your curators here at the house, Joe Merle. And I'm the other one. I'm Josh. Welcome back, Joe. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I want to start the show by giving Cliff a huge thank you. Um, that dude came through, absolutely just nailed it. It was, uh, you guys had an awesome episode, man. And he made me feel like I know nothing about horror. Like his, <laughs> his knowledge level was just, he was just like, bang, 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 knocking them all down. Uh, seen them all. <laughs> yeah. Which was, um, it was really, really cool. Really good episode. Uh, so thanks again, Cliff from, uh, what is it? Devil times five podcast. Exactly. Yeah. The devil okay. times five podcast. Yeah. Thanks Cliff. Yeah. I want to make sure we put that out there again so that, um, yeah, we could, he just re- did a really good job and it is good to be back. It was good to be back on Tuesday recording those movie guys. I actually have everything set up at the new house. I'm still just working like, uh, like crazy <laughs> to get everything. I'm not good at, moving in and then still having stuff that's left undone like i just want to get everything done as fast as humanly possible yeah (laughs) so i've been working a lot of very long days around the house and uh but it is good to be back and there should be no reason that um that i won't be around you know for (laughs) for the foreseeable future i don't have anything anything big planned not until the end of uh august we have a short vacation then but but yeah um but how are you doing man how's life treating you uh, I'm doing good. I've actually been drinking yesterday, so if I sound a bit, <laughs> if I sound a bit tired, you'll know why. And this is the second time in a row, so I gotta, I gotta. Yeah, I chill think. A bit. Yeah, I think you even said that on the last episode. Pretty soon, yeah. we're gonna have to have a, we're gonna have to have an intervention episode for Josh. <laughs> Josh, yeah, yeah. But, I'm, but I'm excited to be recording and uh, yeah, talking about still moving in and uh, getting everything done. I still don't have lights in my room. <laughs> So I've, I've, I'm on vacation for the next two weeks, and that's my main focus is finally moving in. Yes. Yeah. Also, my, my roommate just bought a living room table and a table to sit a TV on top of. So we're, we're slowly moving in. Very and I nice. hope to be <laughs> mostly done in the next two weeks. Also, half the movies I still got to put into my shelves. Yeah, there's some empty <laughs> shelves back there, but that's okay. You'll get there. Uh, I'll get there, yeah. Yeah, but that's good. And... um. Yeah, moving in is never a, a fun process, and that's. I was very happy that this house. I mean, I don't plan on moving again for a very, very long time, <laughs> if ever. This will yeah. be it. Um, but let's uh, let's jump right in. We got kind of a, a full full episode today because I've got. I don't know how many you had on your. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to we'll, that. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, but we're gonna start off like we do um, every week and get into our next episode of the Twilight Zone, the season one, episode seven, the Lonely. Uh, directed by Jack Smite, written by Serling, um, and then the music, of course, is the same. The original air date was November 13th, 1959, so we're getting a little bit closer to uh, to Christmas, and this is, I think, our, our true first step into the Twilight Zone that most people know, and that is the episodes just with the like brutal irony or kind of the gut punch at the end. You know, that big reveal, that big twist, everything kind of leading up to this point has been pretty straightforward. 
And, you know, there was never a huge every I mean, it was kind of shocking when um, she was on the screen at the end of uh, I can't remember. Yeah. Which, uh, uh, at the 16 millimeter shrine yeah 16 millimeter shrine so that was a little bit shocking you know for the audiences yeah. but this one i feel more than any of the others leading up to this point it's like whoa that's you know it, that sucks and a lot <laughs> of times the twilight zone makes you say oh that sucks um but this one uh will kick it off with the um opening narration so i'll do my best here because this is kind of a long one but uh, all right, here we go. Opening narration for The Lonely, Episode 7, Season 1, The Twilight Zone. Witness, if you will, a dungeon made out of mountains, salt flats, and sand that stretch to infinity. The dungeon has an inmate, James A. Corey, and this is his residence, a metal shack, an old touring car that squats in the sun and goes nowhere, for there is nowhere to go. For the record, let it be known that James A. Corey is a convicted criminal placed in solitary confinement. Confinement in this case stretches as far as the eye can see, because this particular dungeon is on an asteroid nine million miles from Earth. Now witness, if you will, a man's mind and body shriveling in the sun, a man dying of loneliness. So that's a uh, that's our intro. And you got some great, uh, some great cast members in this one. Um, Jack Warden, I know... Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know him. I always remember him from Shampoo. I don't know if you've ever seen Shampoo, the movie. No, um, no I haven't. Yeah, he actually uh, was nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actor. It's it's a good movie. Um, and then he was uh, Heaven, Heaven Can Wait as well uh, a few years later. And after that, Gene Marsh plays Alicia. Um, John uh, Diener is Albie, uh, Allenby, which is always the name always... I don't know. I've never heard that name anywhere outside of this road or this uh, um, episode. And I don't know if it's supposed to be his last name and they just called him Alan B. But uh, Ted Knight. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. A very young Ted Knight shows up as uh, as Adams. And he, um, you know, Ted Knight, probably most famous from the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I always loved him, though, in Caddyshack. He was fantastic in Caddyshack. But our story is you have this guy, uh, Corey. They talked about it. He's um, James Corey lives in this world that he was convicted for murder and he was sent to an asteroid. Um, however many miles it was, 9 million miles. Yeah. I yeah. just said it. So it's yeah. 9 million <laughs> miles from earth where he's spent to, uh, or sent to live in solitary confinement, which, you know, this episode, if you think about it logistically, makes no sense. Like how much fuel and money you're spending to, because <laughs> To bring stuff four times a year, they're uh, they're flying yeah. up there just to bring him stuff. Yeah, so and maybe the time, may- the time schedule sounds really uh, really harsh. Like if they don't manage to get off in fifteen minutes, they uh, gotta stay there for uh, two weeks. Yeah. yeah, and the so who knows though? Maybe it's a world where uh, it's kind of like a Star Trek type universe where all you know monetary systems have fallen and you know there is no more. So it could be. Yeah, um, maybe. But yeah, and these guys though, and it's not even just the time it takes them to get there. It's they're like, oh, I'm gone for you know eleven months or eight months out of the year. My kids don't even know who I am when I come back. Yeah. And who knows though? Maybe they're doing other space things along the way. But Corey's up there. He's on this. It you know it looks like they filmed somewhere out in the California desert. It's it's very much a desert <laughs> landscape. And he just has one little shack. Um, and he's got a car that Alan B had brought him over time that he slowly pieced back together. And so they come this most recent time, and 
Corey gets real excited. He he gets out like this makeshift uh, like chess or checkers that's made out of like nuts and bolts. He, he, he said chess, but I don't think you can play chess like that because it's it's like you said, just nuts and bolts, and they all look the same. I think that would be really hard to keep track of which is yeah. which if they all unless look the same. you unless you kind of like scratched maybe a letter into each of the you know pieces. I I don't know, but yeah, he says chess. And he's got a couple of cans of beer that he had stashed in the fridge. Like, I guess even if you're in solitary, you're allowed to have beer. They bring in beer every once in a while. So uh, Alan B. and the crew shows up. And Corey's so excited about it. He's like, oh, yeah, uh, come on in for a little bit. Just hang out for a few minutes. Let's let's play some cards or let's play some chess. Um, anything, you know, he's we quickly learn this dude is like dying for human contact. He just he just needs yeah. human interaction. Like the first thing he does is goes and grab not, not just shakes the hand to say, but grabs the hand and it's oh yeah, hi, nice that you're here and yeah. It's so good to see you. And so they, as you had mentioned, their whole job is just to bring him supplies, any kind of supplies that he might need for then or in the future. And Allenby is really sympathetic to Corey. And Corey, I think it is at this point where he says, you know, it was in self defense that I killed this guy. And he keeps asking, like, did my pardon come yet? Did my pardon come yet? Alan B feels bad for him. And right before they're getting ready to leave, because as you did say, they only have a small window of time that they have to get off of the asteroid before um, they'll just be stuck, before it makes a full rotation again and they can shoot off in the right trajectory. And so Alan B tells him, he's like, hey, I got you this big box, but don't open it until we're gone. Like, we're, we're completely gone. Yeah, because he could actually lose his head over this. Yeah, like he was not supposed to bring this box. And so they take off. Alan B opens the box, and there's a a woman. I mean, for all intents and purposes, there's a woman inside. She He sets her up, and she's just kind of standing there in the desert with her, her hair blowing. And he gets a little card, and he reads the card, and it says something along like, this is you. And I always liked that back then on a lot of TV shows, they didn't say robot. They said robot. The, the It's a robot. And he has reads this card, and this is your, your robot. And for all, um, to the naked eye, she's a human being. You know, she's nothing more yeah. than a human being. So he reads the card, and when he says the name Alicia, then her... It activates her, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, she, before that, she stands there. She looks already alive, but she's just kind of standing there. And once he says the name, she she looks like up. And it's like, I, I like that she, the actress, actually managed to be pretty good as a robot that just got activated. Right. As in, like, she, she, she has this certain a monotone voice, but not too monotone. It doesn't sound like she's trying to play a robot. Yeah, which I which I thought was really good that she actually yeah felt real. <laughs> yeah, because she doesn't in a lot of this stuff. It's like I am a robot. <laughs> I am here to do robot things. Exactly. She, yeah. She's just very. My name is Alicia. Oh, Corey. And then over time, she slowly becomes more and more human like. I think throughout yeah. the episode. And at first, he is very apprehensive. He's very standoffish about this idea of having a robot who is there with him because he believes it's a, you know, it's, it's almost going to drive him more mad because it represents life, but it is not life. Yeah. And he, he says, uh, he, he doesn't want any more females mocking him. Right. That's kind of, he, he feels like that. It's like mocking him because he's lonely. He's alone. And now they send a robot and he, 
doesn't think that that's a good thing. Yeah. And yeah, he seems, he seems pretty upset about it at first. And then he, he what is he? Yeah. Didn't he like push her over or something? He he pushes her. He's, he says she's not human. And then she says she can, she can feel as he asks her, do you feel pain? Do you feel heat? Can you feel this and that? And, and, but he doesn't believe her, I guess. And then he just knocks her over and says something else that, uh, she will never know what it feels like, uh, uh, how he feels. And then, uh, and then she just starts crying and says like, I can feel lonely too. Yeah. And then he realized, okay, I can sympathize with her. She's actually more than just metal. Yeah. And it raises a good question. You know, when does something gain any sort of sentience? Like at what point does something become human or portray human characteristics? Because you you read these weird stories online about people like falling in love with a cucumber or something, but in <laughs> in this instance you can see it and it's over the it, the only thing I didn't quite understand about the episode is you know from the time Alicia gets there until the end of the episode it's been eleven months it's been almost a full year so did he just hide her when the other guys would come back because I feel like the yeah. other two astronauts would because they had come back they had dropped off more supplies i i think so because uh if you look at the very end um uh, the others are coming there and she's somewhere far far out oh that's true sitting somewhere in in the far distance so i i guess she always went for a walk and sat down on some rocks so they wouldn't see her oh that's a good i guess at least yeah that's it that makes sense and over over those 11 months though you know Corey begins to fall in love with her we kind of have a lot of these images of them playing games together, um, hanging out in the the house together, going on walks together, sitting around. So he really has now fallen in love with, with Alicia. And that's when we do get to the end and Alan B shows up. Um, he comes running up, you know, he's so excited and he's like, we got you your pardon. Like they finally determined that this form of solitary confinement is cruel and unusual Either that or they ran out of money and we're just like, we can't keep <laughs> we can't keep doing this. But he gets his pardon, and this is where our, our nasty little twist comes from. And it really is a nasty one. Because Alan B had forgotten for the most part about Alicia, which I think yeah. he would have if if, like you said, she was gone every time he came yeah. back. So Alan B had forgotten about Alicia. And they say, Go grab your stuff, Corey, go get your stuff. And he his performance right there is really good. Where he's like my my stuff. Like, what do I got? I got a hat and a what a deck of cards. Like, he's almost punch drunk with excitement. Yeah. You know, he's barely making any sense. And then he says, "Okay, well, me and Alicia." And that's when Allenby's face. He's like, "Oh crap!" Like, I <laughs> I forgot about this. And so he tells him, "You can't bring Alicia. Like, she's too heavy." Corey starts to have a little bit of a breakdown. Well. <laughs> throw some of your gear off, you know, get rid of something. We need to bring Alicia in his mind. He's, you know, this, he's in a romantic relationship, I guess, with this, this robot, which I'm sure he's been having sex with up there. Like, I feel like if they, you're... <laughs> at, at the, uh, when he opens the box, the, the way he reads that she's in all ways, human, right. and I, I, all I could think of, okay, it's a sex robot. That was, that was my first thought. I even told uh, Shane of that I was watching this. I watched it a few nights ago rewatched it and i said oh yeah that's the first thing he'd be doing with that robot 
Um, but he starts to panic and realizes that, and he starts arguing with Alan P. Like, no, she's she's human. She's human. Or maybe he doesn't say human, but he says something along those lines where mm-hmm. she's she's real, and you know she's my Alicia. And so, in order to uh, prove him wrong, Alan B. just pulls his gun out and shoots her right in the face. Bang! Yeah. And, and then uh, you hear the Corey, 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 Corey. Yeah. <laughs> it was you know it was pretty good effects too for the time. Like her. Yeah, the, the face looked. Uh, yeah. yeah, real, real. <laughs> yeah, it looked really good. It did look like a, a robot face, and. It um, Corey then you know bounces back and takes off with these guys, but this is one of those like I said one of those episodes that I feel this is the first time where you get those kind of brutal twist endings. Not as bad as next week's going to be because that one is just <laughs> oh man that was <laughs> next week's is almost uh, comedic again. So. Yeah, oh, I love. It. I started watching it and then I was going to wait. That's my problem with the Twilight Zone. Once I start, I'll just start watching them all back to back to back to back. And um, so they get off, but we'll talk about next week, next week. So they yeah. end up, they end up leaving and we'll do our closing narration real quick. And then we can talk about maybe some of the themes and stuff of the episode. Yeah. All right. So here's the closing uh, narration on a microscopic piece of sand that floats through space is a fragment of a man's life left to rust is the place he lived and the machines he used without use. They will disintegrate from the wind and sand and the years that act upon them. All of Mr. Corey's machines, including the one made in his image, kept alive by love, but now obsolete in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. The episode, um, I I really liked it. There's, uh, yeah, there's lots in there. And what I like about the Twilight Zone, especially like in, in this way, um, so often, especially like this was this came out before the first people went to the moon, right? And but still, this episode you could play this exactly like this today, and it would still work. Like it, it doesn't like it's in black and white. It looks a bit old, but it doesn't feel old. Like this is yeah, and that's always a problem with sci- sci-fi where it uh, where it often um, gets old or like doesn't that doesn't work anymore if you look at it now. And this just perfectly works absolutely yeah it's very simple i mean and from a production standpoint probably super inexpensive to make you know you only had one tiny little shack on the desert probably i mean alicia's face might have been the the most costly is making that robot prosthetic or however they made that it looked like just a real robot with a (laughs) bullet hole in its face yeah and a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes, I think, are like that. And they've done a really good job over the years remastering them. The remasters look really good. Whoever yes. whoever took the originals and, and redid these, they're they're so clean. And it's it's funny to say last night, this is kind of a side note, but last night when I was down working in the basement getting all the gym equipment set up, I will from Hey Down in Front a few, maybe three, four months ago, it sent me a VCR, a working VCR, because yeah. I didn't have one, and I had all these VHS tapes, and I got it hooked up and had everything going, and I threw in uh, Scream. I watched Scream on VHS as I was as I was doing everything down there, and if you look at I forgot how different VHS looks. I mean, just the, the, the quality um but it's so drastically different from you know what we see today and i can only imagine these twilight zone episodes if you were to see the original 
runs, you know, the original airs, they would look very, very different. So yeah, probably. They've been cleaned up beautifully. But yeah. this is, this is again, and where the Twilight Zone shines is they tell us these stories. And I think Rod did such a good job. He, he knew what he was doing when he was putting this show together. And they tell stories that, for the most part, are timeless. You know, yeah. it, does, it doesn't matter what time. Loneliness is a real thing that people experience. And, yeah. and at some point in their life, I feel everybody has felt lonely. So they can, you know, attach themselves to Corey. They, they get it. And they, they know what that feels like to be lonely. And then to have some sort of companion, companionship, even for people in this life, you know, this modern age, I think pets have become so much more prevalent. Um, you see everybody posting online about their cats and dogs. I don't think they become more prevalent, but I don't think 50 years ago, people, maybe 60, 70 years ago, people were, you know, dressing their animals up and throwing birthday parties with hats and cakes and and stuff, but nobody likes loneliness. However, you fill that void. Nobody likes to be completely lonely, and I think it would, no matter what, drive a person insane. The very first episode, "Where Is Everybody," was all about loneliness, yeah, and, loneliness and yeah. him being isolated. So these themes, I think, is why the Twilight Zone is still relevant today. Unlike some other sci-fi shows of the time, is it deals with true human emotion and things yeah. that we experience, and to see that ripped away from somebody is it's you know it sucks. See, yeah, yeah it really does. I actually expected this episode to end differently um, because uh, so often uh, maybe it has to do with uh, seeing the preview for the episode when uh, at the end of the last episode I watched. But I expected the, the robot to turn out to be just like all in his mind and his imagination because all the time he said uh, things like uh, yeah, she, uh, she, she said what I thought we, we were the same, basically. So I expected her to actually be just like a puppet or something. And that's what we see in the end when Ellen uh, B goes there. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah, yeah, but uh, they, they didn't go there. They stayed with it's a robot, which it's it's a totally different um, uh, story that, that uh, the, not, not, uh, the meaning the meaning would completely change. Yeah. And I still like the meaning they have and the idea. I just I expected um, something different. Yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, that would have fit right in line with the Twilight Zone, though, even if it had gone that way. Because they did mention that, you're right, a few times that she began to mirror him. Yeah. I think they even brought it up. So, very, very good episode. I really like The Lonely a lot. And next week, we will be getting into Time Enough at Last, which, in the world of the Twilight Zone, is one of the most iconic episodes. Hands yeah, that- down, one of the most iconic episodes. Because and it's been parodied so many times, it you know it's just and it's got one of my my all time favorite um, performances you know by Burgess Meredith he's oh he's so good everybody knows him I think for the most part from and he actually comes back for a few times in the Twilight Zone okay he, yeah he comes back in season two in the obsolete man and then he comes back again i want to say in mr dingle i think it's called mr dingle the strong i could be wrong now now i'm curious um let me see if i can just punch it in real quick yeah burgess meredith though i think most people would know from rocky playing um playing mickey but he of course is a bit a bit older in rocky yeah this was uh (laughs) Um, still in the 50s. Oh, one more thing about the episode that's uh, kind of um, 
interesting to me is I, I have the Blu-rays and um, they usually all also have a German dub for each episode, which I, of course, watch them in English. But what's interesting is this episode didn't have a German dub, which I, I have. I wonder why I couldn't find something um, quickly. Yeah. Might have never aired here and they just never did a dub because maybe the, the robot killing is too, too brutal. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's but, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And I got to find out more about it. Also, there's also no uh, German release date like with some of the other episodes where it says like 96 or something. Interesting. Maybe they, I don't know, maybe they just didn't air that one. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. But, oh, okay, so, yeah, it is Mr. Dingle the Strong is the other episode from season two where he stars opposite uh, the great Don Rickles. Uh, but Burgess Meredith, yeah, kind of a staple in the Twilight Zone. So next week we'll be getting into Time Enough at Last, which is just the best. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> Let's not get too into it Yeah, now. we won't. Okay, <laughs> so moving on to the main topic for today. This was actually a request from... Uh, Phil from over at My Celluloid Heart, he said, hey, why don't you guys um, do an episode where you talk about your top favorite, your your favorite or your top horror performances. So those yeah. performances, and this one was interesting going into it because I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go. And I started thinking first of, you know, killer performances um, and then more the actors and actresses who play opposite the killers and performances and it was it wasn't as easy i think as i thought it was going to be at first yeah but i came up with a list of 10 which for me and this isn't an all inclusive list there are those that i'm sure i left off that i'm going to think about after the fact and be like that was great that was great but these were the ones that first came to mind for me that i was like those performances every time i see them today when i still watch and i'm like that's just amazing and performances i think my criteria for this for the most part was Without that performance, the movie would have truly lost something. Like you needed that actor's portrayal or that actress's portrayal of these yeah. of these characters in order for it to to hold up and and make it great. Some of them are pretty common, I would say, in what most people would consider good horror performances. And I've got a few in there that I think are are a little bit different. And I don't I didn't put mine in any particular order. I know you love having a, a top ten, but I didn't put mine in any particular order. Because I thought they were all just worth celebrating and not even truly ranking, just yeah. being excited about it. Yeah, I was uh, I was similar. I made also a list. I, I just counted. I also um, accidentally also picked 10. Well, actually, I got uh, 12, but three are from the same movie, and I just lumped them together. Oh, nice. <laughs> and um, else, uh, yeah, I also uh, just looked at what I what I got, uh, what I what I could think of, and then looked for a few lists just to see what others, what I maybe couldn't think of right now. And uh, yeah, but these are all, um, I, I just looked for, like, like you said, I think uh, great performances in general, where I thought they enhanced the movie, sometimes even winning the, the people an Oscar or getting them Oscar nomination, because there's some really great performances in horror movies. I didn't look in particular for horrible uh, villains. Also, I, um, I, I thought about uh, picking uh, people like uh, Bruce Campbell, but he it almost doesn't feel like a performance, but just like he's playing himself, basically. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of took him off the list. Uh, but uh, so I, w when it's just people uh, like doing their, their character that they, that they always do and that they're 
so known for i usually didn't pick them as the uh as one uh, of the, like with bruce campbell yeah i said i'm, I'm gonna keep, leave him off there but else also mine is also not ranked okay how i how i found that <laughs> all right well let's um let's just start it up you can uh let you go first and why don't you give us the first uh the first name on your list and i think we might have a couple that are the same but we'll see probably yeah so the first one the first one i came up with is actually maybe even a bit um I don't know, controversial, maybe a little bit. I got Boris Karloff as the monster, as Frankenstein's monster. I've got it on my list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's not controversial. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not. I don't think it's controversial at all because the more I thought about that performance and him bringing that to life without him in that role, and it was it, – it, Boris Karloff always acted with his eyes. Like his eyes are what, you know, what he, he could act without speaking, which, you know, he comes from the era of the silent film. He was around when you had to truly act in order to convey a message where you didn't have the ability to say anything. You got these. Now, he didn't really act, I don't think, too much in any silent stuff. I don't remember a ton of his. I think he was a stage actor before. And yeah. Just came, came to the U.S. A pretty stage actor came to the U.S. in his 40s, I think, and then started movies. Right. And this was yeah. like one of the first performances, I think. But he remembers the the silent era and when that was yeah. when that was prevalent. And but with the monster, he's one of the few. I think he might be, or no, he's not the only villain I have on here. But he's one of the few. And I, I mean, we could sit here and argue whether or not he's even a villain, or <laughs> you know, if he's just a a product. This kind of falls in line with that Twilight Zone episode. Like, what makes something human? You know, what yeah. what really does make something human? But his performance, and not only in. I think his performance in the first Frankenstein is amazing, but it's the bride where I always, that final sequence in bride where he speaks and you actually hear yeah. him talking. Um, but he, he makes you feel so much for that character without really saying anything. It's yeah. just, it's just acting. And to me, that's a performance when you can just act and make somebody emotionally invested in something without saying any words. Cause over the course of that movie, you start to feel true compassion for the monster. Like you really yeah. understand his, his plight and he's almost uh, a simpleton in so many ways. And you almost want to go to him and hold his hand and tell him it's going to be okay and help him like guide him through life. You want to, you want to see him get, and for him to be able to pull that out of uh, what most people consider would be a monster. And at the time, I'm sure it was scary. You know, ah, this thing is back <laughs> from the dead. They brought him back, but and his facial expressions, like I said, throughout his responses to the world around him are just amazing. Yeah. They're phenomenal. And also, like, he, he didn't say much, especially in the first movie, but he made these sounds that he also liked the, 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 yeah. the growl that were also really, really well done, I thought. And, like, he managed to to bring something out of just growling. He, yeah. he made you feel sympathy for him with that even. Yeah, it's a good uh, one. Yeah, so he it's it's one of the greatest performances in horror easily in, in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great performance in general. Um so my first one is an interesting one because it's a movie I've only seen the one time. I need to go back and rewatch it because I feel like the theater environment when I saw it wasn't very conducive to truly enjoying the movie because there was this guy behind me who kept yelling and which is weird for a horror movie in the theater. But I I do remember this performance and just being absolutely blown away by it. And as Tony Collette in Hereditary, 
which I haven't seen that yet. Oh <laughs> man, you really got to get on that and watch Hereditary. If if just for her performance, I mean, the woman executes on a level that most people only dream of achieving. Ev- almost every single emotion you could imagine. Like she she runs the entire gambit of the emotional spectrum and executes flawlessly every single time. And even though I, and that's, I think a, a true tale of an amazing performance is when I didn't even really enjoy the movie, but I walked away and I was like, she was so good. Like it's yeah, worth that- watching just to see her. And most people though, hail this movie as one of the best horror movies of the past decade. So maybe I'm the idiot. Maybe I'm the one who's wrong here. Who knows? I need to go back and rewatch it again, but she executes on a level that most people will never will never reach. And I've always been a Tony Collette fan, but in this one, she showcases her talent in a way that I don't feel a lot of people have given her the opportunity to do. And again, it's just every emotion you you name an emotion, she does it in this movie, and she <laughs> she does it flawlessly. It's a yeah. uh, it's a great movie. So I would say, yeah, when you get a chance, I I really need to. It's it's not. Uh, it's got no. It's no streaming anywhere. So I still gotta wait for it to come out yeah. so I can. That's, what, that's one I feel like if you got the extra couple bucks, you should add to your collection. I feel like, okay. it's, yeah, it's one that should be should be in the collection because, I mean, you might watch it and be like, wow, that was just unbelievably good. Don't take my word for it because I haven't met another single person yet who feels like I do about it. And that's what makes me wonder if maybe it was just the experience I had was not good. And therefore, when I left the theater, I was like, oh, that sucked because I got this guy sitting two rows behind me like, dad, where's my dad? He's supposed to be here watching this with me. It was it was really it was really bizarre. So, but Tony Collette, yeah, and Hereditary, very very good. I'm I'm gonna watch it at some point for sure. Uh, the next one on my list, the next one I uh, came up with is um, uh, Kathy Bates as uh, Anna Wilkes in, Wilkes in uh, Misery. Uh, Misery. That's yeah. right. Thank you. Yes, uh, where she. She is so menacing and evil and ah, she, and she yeah. And now did she get nominated? I think she got nominated. I'm, I'm wondering if she even won. I'm going to look that up. Because yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure she got nominated. Yeah. Uh, and what uh, yeah. makes Misery so scary and her performance so scary is she goes from almost happy homemaker to psychopath at the literal flip of a switch. Like she'll yeah. be she'll be smiling, having these good conversations, and then just lose her mind and start screaming or throw something across the room. She, um, oh, she killed that performance. Oh, that was yes. so good. And she she won best actress in a leading role. Okay, so good. Yeah, I, she, I was I knew she got nominated. But I, I yeah. was pretty sure she got nominated. But yeah, she and she deserves that award. Yeah, for sure. And she, yeah, it's it's just she manages to be so menacing. And yeah, like you said. Like with the flick of a switch, she changes completely, and uh, but she she doesn't feel like an actress or like I'm actually scared of Kathy Bates right. because of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I get. I mean, a hundred percent. You know, she she's terrifying in a way that only I think Stephen King has done in the past. You know, however long he's been writing for 40, 50 years now, he um you know he takes these real world situations and just manipulates them in a way that makes them real world scary when he does stuff like misery. I actually, when I was moving, I listened to uh, four Stephen King books, audio books. <laughs> Cause I just put in my AirPods and was just, you know, carrying boxes or doing, 
I didn't listen to Misery, but I listened to Gerald's Game, uh, Doctor Sleep, The Outsider, and Cujo. Which Cujo, I think, is kind of like Misery in that there's not a lot of supernatural stuff going on. Everything is very real world, and that's I mean, being trapped. And James Con was so good in that movie, opposite her. But without her, that movie wouldn't have been what it yeah. was. I can't imagine anybody else really. And it it's hard to imagine anybody playing a lot of roles, you know, once you've seen the movie, but she is, you know, she'll be baking you cookies one minute and then smashing your ankles in with a sledgehammer the next minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, she's, she's so good in that. And I I will always watch something she's in just because she's a great actress. And uh, yeah, because of this performance, she's, I I love her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. So my next one I've got up on my list is actually, I put two movies on there. I watched one of them yesterday, uh, and then the other one was just from last year. But I've got Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. And Jamie Lee, I was talking to Shana while we were sitting down watching Halloween, because it's a movie I just put on, you know. Whenever (laughs) I can't think of what I'm going to watch, it's usually Night of the Living Dead, Halloween, Chainsaw, um, any of those. But Jamie Lee Curtis, for her first movie, she showed up and played that girl next door. She defined what the final girl would look like. Without her performance, we wouldn't have so many of the final girls that we had that followed Halloween. And without her, I don't think Halloween would have been the runaway success that it was. You know, highest grossing independent horror film of all time up until, I want to say, Blair Witch. I think was the one who eventually knocked it down, but she was so perfect as the girl next door. And you never once felt like she was just some, some young girl trying to break her way into acting. I mean, she was so believable as Laurie Strode. She was so believable as Laurie Strode. And even if you compare her to, you know, Annie, I was talking to, to Shana again yesterday when I was watching, I was like, Annie's kind of a dumbass, And she's kind of like, they both felt, um, Everybody else didn't, they didn't feel quite as authentic. They felt like people trying to be high school kids. Whereas Jamie Lee Curtis, even though she was dressed like a 50 year old teacher, you know, with her, (laughs) her tights on and her sweaters and stuff. She, she was so believable in that role that that's what made to me. That's one of the reasons that Halloween is so good is because you feel like she could actually be your neighbor or she could actually be the girl down the street who's babysitting for you. And without that, the movie would have just kind of been, you know, 70s kind of just fodder, just real quick, throw it out in a theater. Would would probably be another one of the many movies that no one talks about anymore other than us. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it really would have, you know, like The Burning or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it wouldn't have been anything, anything spectacular. And I did write down a note next to it, though, in that her performance in the most recent Halloween in 2018, I thought, was just as good. She... She's grown so much as an actress. You know, we've seen her on the screen and she yeah. comes from good pedigree. I mean, Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. That's a yeah. <laughs> that's good parents to have if you want to be an actor. Um, yeah, for but, sure. But she's she's proven over the course of her career that she is she is great. I absolutely love Jamie Lee Curtis and this though, her starting point in Halloween. It's the reason the movie is so good. Without it, it still would have been a good movie. Like you said, it still would have been fun. We would still be talking about it. But without her, it would not be not be the icon, the the you know, the phenomenon that it was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she she's great. I just I can just say uh, everything you said is is true. I don't think I have anything to add about her. 
but uh, yeah, also the, that's like your movie. So yeah, <laughs> it's okay it that you just said everything about it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's all true for sure. Uh, my next one, now I got the, the three that I just lumped together. Uh, it's um, Alan Burstyn, Max von Sydow, and Linda Player. I put them all together in uh, uh, the, the Exorcist. Exorcist. Yeah, because you really are hungover, know, aren't you? Because <laughs> <No. laughs> I know these are movies that you love and know. I know the brain is a little foggy. It's a little exactly, foggy. Yeah, I've got some. Yeah, I've, so. I had Linda Blair written down, but I didn't have. Um, I mean, Max von Sydow is, and you and I have talked about so many times how it's amazing how they how old they made him look in that in that movie. I still can't. I still think they actually just traveled in time and took old Max von Sydow and said, here, come do this movie and then go back to your timeline. Because he looks exactly like he looks now. It's, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, also his acting is great. Um, Ellen Burstyn as the mother is great. But yeah, Linda Blair is really good. And she was really young when she, when she did that. And so I'm not sure how much of the, uh, the possessed girl is actually her playing that because i think she also had a body double and like this other actress who also did the voice who played the demon possessed girl if i remember correctly so but also just as the as the sweet child that just goes a bit crazy she was great and yeah especially for a child her age and a lot of it i know from what i've seen and read she didn't even understand a lot of what she was doing they were just like, hey, you need to do this. But some of that stuff they really put her through. Like, I know her slamming up and down on the bed. You know, those are true screams of pain where they had this kind of pulley system rigged up, I think, around her torso. And they were just letting her go and then yanking her back down onto the bed. They, uh, But Linda Blair, I, I had her on my list. And I love Ellen Burstyn. I, you know, she hasn't given a performance that I didn't enjoy, no matter what she's in. And Von Sydow, of course, is, you know, one of the greats. But Linda Blair, I think in that movie, like you said, she's such a lovable kid to begin with. And when she's talking yeah. about the the horses and the geldings, oh, mother, you should have been there. You should have seen the geldings. They were just wonderful. Oh, and Captain Howdy, I got this new friend. Um, <laughs> and for a lot of it, though, I I don't know how much was her and how much wasn't in the actual possessed part of it. I want to say it was her for... For a lot of that stuff, but I could be mistaken. I could be wrong here. Yeah, there, there's also been articles recently that the actress who mostly played her uh, came out and was like uh, a bit angry that she never. But I'm, I'm not sure if that if that was just like clickbait. I didn't read the whole article. Maybe that was just something made up. I'm not sure. But so the, I'm I'm not sure. But even like we said, even the scenes where she's actually just a kid, she's great. So. Uh, yeah, we'll. Yeah, we um, could find out, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to look at um, if there was anything, and then she would go on. I mean, the other Exorcist. I really like Exorcist three. I'm a big fan of the third one, but the uh, so let's see, and then oh, that's funny. I'm looking through some facts about the Exorcist. You didn't know some theaters handed out barf bags, which I'm sure <laughs> was just a marketing gimmick, but. I I can imagine some people uh some people got pretty um pretty disgusted <laughs> by the movie. <laughs> Probably, um, yeah. Anyway, and we'll we'll I move on. P uh no not P uh is it wait, what is it called? 
Where's the, the, the vomiting uh, scene. Oh, the that's, pea uh, soup? Pea soup, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's uh, disgusting. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was bad. I always liked the... Um, yeah, this is a weird thing to like, but when she comes down to the party and just starts peeing on the floor, to me, that was always... That was always so creepy. Like, just yeah. something... Yeah, it, it really is. Okay, so what's what's your next uh, All right. actor? So my next up, uh, one Mr. Anthony Perkins, which, oh, I... yeah, his performance in, you know, I've always loved uh, Psycho. That's no, no shocking news here. Always been a huge fan of Psycho. But his performance in that role, and it's one of the few, there's only two where I've ever read the books and I enjoyed the movies more than the books. And Psycho is one with one of them and Jaws is the other one. Because in Jaws, the book, you just end up hating the the characters. Like Hooper is just kind of disgusting. Um, but with Psycho, in the book, if I remember correctly, he was kind of overweight. He was balding, kind of a, a grosser, kind of greasier character than wow. Anthony Perkins' portrayal. But Perkins, and still one of my favorite sequences in Psycho, is when him and Marion are in the parlor um, having the sandwiches. When yeah. he when he goes and he brings her back the sandwiches, and they're having the discussion about where are we ever really trapped? Can we run away? You know, they're getting into some pretty deep philosophical ideas, and you see Perkins, you know that there's something there. There's something underneath there with him and his mom. And and now everybody knows how the movie plays out. But up until that point, you know, him talking about, I could never leave. I could never leave my mother. And, um, you know, talking about the birds and the taxidermy. He's maybe one of the first times on screen where the killer was truly likable. For You know, you felt bad for him. You've, you felt like he was put, he was forced into a position where he had no way out. And you, you felt an emotion for a killer, you wouldn't learn he was the killer till a little bit later on. But in the context of the movie, he wasn't the killer. And you could kind of feel for him. Like, he was almost at at odds with this, this killer persona. But his entire performance throughout the course of that movie, even when he's panicking a little bit, I love the scene where the car is going down and the car stops, where it's sinking into the swamp. And you see that look on his face, you know? I think he was, like, snacking on some peanuts or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you see that look on his face when he realizes, like, oh, shit. Like, what do I do if the, you know, there's nothing I can do if this car doesn't go down all the way. It's got to happen. But his performance over the course of that movie and Janet Lee, I thought she was awesome as as Marion Crane. She does a, a phenomenal job there as well. And Vera, I mean, Vera Miles was so good in that movie. Everybody in that movie does a really good job, but... Yeah, Hitchcock is really good at getting great performances out of people. Yeah, sometimes, though, if you, you read how he gets them out of people, it's... <laughs> yeah. You know, I almost I almost wrote down uh, Tippi Hedren uh, from The Birds because yeah. she, she was so good in that, but I didn't write it down for that reason specifically. You know, she was scarred for so long after that, the stuff yeah. he had he had put her through. So was that her performance or was that her just being abused in a lot of ways? Oh, don't worry. It'll just be fake birds. And then throws her in a room full of all these, <laughs> these live birds. Oh yeah. That's horrible. But Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Yeah. So since we're talking Anthony Perkins, I think even when he comes back to the character in uh, psycho two, uh, he's, he's still um, really good. Like he, he's a really good actor, at least in that role. I've seen him in one or two other movies, but He's yeah, he's always likable, always good. But in, in Psycho, uh yeah, he's just uh amazing. 
And Psycho, and, and I like Psycho 2 a lot. Me too. I, yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the, the second Psycho. The third one, not so much. The fourth one I thought was a cool idea. It was neat, but it just didn't didn't really land land for me. Yeah. But that first one, Anthony Perkins, just unbelievably good. Yeah, Anthony Perkins. Yeah, he's he's great. I I totally for, uh, forgot about him. So uh, I'm glad you had him on your list because I didn't, and now I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's why we both make lists. Yeah. Uh, the next one on my list is uh, Betty Davis in um, uh, as the as I think Baby is her name in I, I really this is a movie that I should know the name of as well but I can't think of it right now um, it's uh, not what ever happened to Baby Jane but the other one from the same time that reminds me about the two sisters do you know which movie I mean um, I I feel like I do but at the same time I'm I'm just gonna look it up it's it's uh, Betty Davis uh, and um, and the the other um, <laughs> the other actress and they are playing off each other um yeah it wasn't so not baby jane yeah oh okay so i thought you oh i thought you were saying it wasn't baby jane yeah, but yeah i was i was confused yeah it was uh, whatever happened to baby jane with uh Betty joan, davis joan and crawford Cross. yeah yeah where, where they're like the sisters that uh we're also uh, it's it's another betty davis plays the villain basically or uh, a character yeah yeah she's crazy she, and it is, um, and for Betty Davis at the time, you know, we talked about it kind of with the 16 millimeter shrine, somebody playing a, an actress or an actor who's kind of fading away and yeah. how they're, how they're dealing with a lot of that. And she's kind of, um, living, living through that. And then she starts to, um, what is it? Her sister was, uh, she's in a wheelchair yeah, it's but been, she was a big dancer, I think. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen um since I've seen this. I need to go back and watch that because I remember just loving it. Uh the first time I had seen yeah, it. Same. I just uh, did the uh, IMDB uh description is a former child star torments her paraplegic sister in their decaying Hollywood mansion. Oh, that's right. Cause I think their um I think their dad was some kind of a big famous famous guy as well. Yeah. But no, Betty Davis. One of the all-time greats. She's a name that that and Joan Crawford. I mean, and putting those two side by side, that's just yeah, a, a powerhouse of acting right there. Yeah, they're they're both uh, really good, and also both really good in this. But Betty Davis, I think, in this movie, uh, plays something different than usually because she was also like a normal female lead for for the longest time, and here she is just completely crazy and. The same, same like with Katie Bates. I'm still a little scared of Betty Davis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because she was a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's. I'm gonna have to try and find that. See if. Oh, it looks like it's on Prime right now. Oh, so yeah, maybe I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that soon because I. It's been probably ten years since I've seen it, but Beautiful. I do remember really, really liking it and liking Betty Davis in it. Yeah, same and. Uh... Yeah, it's just great, and she's just great, and that's why I put her on the list. Right on, man. Good choice. My next one is a little bit different. It's uh, definitely a, a far stretch from Betty Davis. But uh, <laughs> this is, I think, my most modern. Yeah, for sure. It is my most modern horror performance, and that is uh, David Howard Thornton, who played Art the Clown in Terrifier. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Art the Clown... 
And I don't know if you had heard it. We talked about it a little bit on those movie guys, but it's official that Terrifier 2 is happening. Like it, it's come out. <laughs> it's it's funded. It's um, everything's starting to move forward with Terrifier 2. I'm very excited about. And in the world of horror, when you've spent so much time watching horror movies, you start to get a little bit, I don't want to say jaded by it all, but a lot of things start to look the same for the most part. You can see some of the the tropes and things like that that are coming. And a lot of your villains are just kind of throwaway. You know, they're 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 not there to really perform. They're there just to be a menacing presence that follows our protagonist and pushes the protagonist to overcome whatever obstacle they need yeah. to per- you know the hero's journey. Whatever they're they need to overcome, they usually do that with the help of the villain. But in Terrifier, I feel like the villain is the star of the show. For sure. <laughs> 100%. The, the villain is the star of the show. And Art the Clown, what makes him so great, the same way we talked about Karloff, is Art never, he never even makes sounds. It's all vaudevillian acting for the most part. You know, everything is very exaggerated and accentuated in these, these funny ways. And some of my favorite moments is him riding that tricycle near, <laughs> near the end of the movie. And also him when he cuts off the homeless woman's face and kind of <laughs> chest plate, I guess, when he's wearing that and kind of like when he dancing around all, all really so creepy, unbelievably creepy. It, it had been years before that where I had been truly uncomfortable with a slasher and like scared of a villain. Like yeah. if I saw that in the street and even him, you know, doing the mock proposal when they're at the pizza restaurant and him kind of like waving at her from, you know, and yeah. he gets down on one knee, his, his whole performance, he just absolutely blew it out of the park. Like it's yeah, so good. He's so good. And uh, I think it's because he was actually a mime before he got into the movie. If I, if I remember correctly, that makes sense. And, and he's, yeah, he's, he's just so great and scary. And he's like, like you said, diff, uh, other than uh, with like Jason or uh, Michael Myers, where it's just like a menacing figure with a with a mask, you don't even really see who's behind it. Um, but um, like even the actors switch most of the time. And we gotta say, Arthur Clown has also been portrayed by three people by now. I think yeah. so. I hope they bring the same one back for the next Terrifier movie, though. I'm sure they will. Uh, yeah, and but. Uh, he that terrifier from that movie he lives through that actor if they had someone else play him the movie could have completely be ruined so um yeah yeah you, you don't know if it i don't know if it could have been the same for somebody to do it as as well as he did it yeah and he's got some um you know other things not a ton of uh not a ton of credits he did he was just in gotham for one episode uh, Nightwing Escalation, which was a TV series where he played the Joker, which makes sense. But Terrifier is really, yeah, it looks like his kind of his biggest thing and what he's most well known for. And I hope the dude gets more work based on it because he really is just insanely talented and brought to life. Again, you know, we live in this world now where it's, it, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's so much easier to make a movie. Like you, you can yeah. make a movie if you get together a group of your friends, get a little bit of funding. You can make a movie, and a lot of these movies just come and go. We never even hear of these movies. But with yeah. Terrifier, as soon as people had saw that, they were like, "You got to see this movie!" Like you, you. I don't know how many people I told, like, "You got to watch Terrifier. You got to watch Terrifier." 
And without Art the Clown, I think it it might not have been quite the same. So yeah, Art's definitely like I said, he's my yeah. most my most recent as well, my most current. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, he's great. Yeah, uh, and since we are on the on the topic of uh, evil clowns, <laughs> I uh, I'm gonna add uh, Bill Skarsgård in the in the recent It movie because he manages to bring something terrifying to that clown. That Tim Curry Tim Curry's version of It was kind of creepy and scary as well, but Bill Skarsgård with his with his acting, just what he like how he behaved was uh very uh scary and like different than uh what we what we'd usually get from a scary clown he kind of i i remember that there's this uh the, the scene uh, when he first is in the in the sewer and talking to uh georgie, to georgie. yeah and he's and he he just has this uh at, at one point his whole face just freezes and he yeah. kind of has just this crazy look in his eyes and that's acting. If actually, like, you you just look crazy without saying a word, even with the opposite, with just not moving at all. And he has that and, uncanny ability to float his one eyeball way up into the corner of his head, which is so creepy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, true. Yeah. Do you think that was CGI? Or he no, no, that's it. That's his eye. Yeah, he's done it. I've seen him do it on uh, talk shows like Late Night. I've seen him. He can do that. He just pushes that one eyeball way way up into the corner. Uh. Which is super uncomfortable. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is a really good performance, and I, I, those two roles are so different for me. Him and Tim Curry. Yeah. To me, Curry was so much creepier in the respect that I feel like you could see him on the street, and he could actually be there. Whereas with Skarsgård, he felt a little more supernatural, which is what Pennywise was. He should have been a little more on the supernatural side, but yeah, those the little lines here and there. And like you said, that is a creepy scene when he's in the, cause he's all like, you want to, yeah, you want a balloon Georgie. And then he just stops and he's just staring and you see, I think even like a little bit of drool or something comes down. Yeah, the, yeah exactly. Yeah. It comes down the side of his mouth, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a great performance in that. I'm very excited about the sequel to that movie. I can't wait to see what they do yeah. with it. Yeah. It's a good one for sure, man. hundred percent agree with you there. Uh, next one I've got up on my side is a one miss Marilyn Burns from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Marilyn's performance. I don't know how much of it is performance and how much of it is her just being genuinely terrified, but you know, she plays again, she plays such a, a wholesome type character, but her, everything she goes through when they put her in these positions of true terror and fright you know, when she is in the gas station for the first time and Drayton Sawyer is, yeah. um, you know, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Just uh, I'm going to I'm going to and you see him grabbing the broom and the thing and you see the panic in her face like she plays panic and scared so well. Yeah. None better than the dinner table scene when she's <laughs> I mean, you I genuinely still believe that I don't even know if she's acting. She seems just so distraught and so truly fearful for her life that it sucks you in in a way that most movies, I don't even think most modern movies have the ability to do where you just want to get out with her. Like you want so bad for her to get out of this situation. And I've always brought up the, the close up on her eyes when they're panicking around the room, yeah. you know, and 
her laughing and freaking out at the end when she's riding in the back of the truck and Leatherface is in the street, you know, swinging the chainsaw around. But Marilyn Burns is, I think, one of the greatest on-screen horror actresses of of all time just for that one performance because it's just beyond good. Yeah, and she she isn't known for much more, right? Like she's mostly that one. (laughs) Yeah, that was really her... um, Kind of her biggest, I'm going to take a peek, uh, but I want to say that was her her biggest thing. I mean, she's got a few other credits, you know, Eating Alive, um, California Cowboys. She, yeah, that's really it. Um, Sacrament. But Texas Chainsaw as Sally Hardesty is just, it's the best. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah, and that was actually her first, um, her first uh, credited role in... Yeah, yeah, because I see she has a couple uncredited ones. A lot of them, that was their first, uh, kind of their first big gig. But nobody yeah. knew Texas Chainsaw was going to be what it was, you <laughs> yeah. know, at the time. It, it was a low-budget production, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> From a first-time director, if I... Well, was this Toby Hooper's first movie? No, I think he had... Oh. He had... Uh, let me pull it up real quick. I think he had something small. Um. yeah. So he had eggshells, and then he had a couple documentaries, but it was his first kind of big, yeah, big outing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, uh, yeah, she she is really good. And like like you just said, with the eyes, that's something I think lots of actors can't act with their eyes or yeah. don't act as much with their eyes. And that's, okay, you don't have to act like Bill Skarsgård with your eyes. Right. In general, uh it's hard to act with your eyes really because that's that's something else you need to manage somehow another guy who was really good i'm, I'm so great at segways today <laughs> another guy who was really good at acting with his eyes by not blinking at all for example um i got uh, on my list anthony hopkins for hannibal lecter in silence of the lambs yeah it's i mean and he didn't have much time on the screen in that movie, but every time he is on the screen and yeah, he, had just, he had just did that. That wasn't even in the script for him not to blink. And I think they had originally written that the first time Clarice meets him and is on the other side of the glass that he would actually be like sitting down at a table or sitting down somewhere. And he was like, no, I feel like this character would just be standing there almost as if he knew that she was coming. But yeah, to be a psychopath to the point where you never blink your eyes is, is kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, his. You can go ahead with this one because it's. I mean, there's very little argument that could ever be made against this performance. Yeah, he's just menacing. He's he's uh, capturing the screen like when he like like you said. I think he has like ten or fifteen minutes of screen time, maybe twenty. I don't know, but no one's talking about Buffalo Bill in that movie. They're no. all talking about uh, about uh, Anthony Hopkins as uh, yeah. Hannibal Lecter. Everyone's talking. This is the Hannibal Lecter movie, even though he's basically just like a, a side character that's that's uh, that's helping. And I'm I'm just looking up. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins won uh, Best Actor in a Leading Role for that role, mm-hmm. which he uh, deserved. Also, Six, sixteen that, minutes. Uh, movie, uh, he what? had sixteen minutes of screen time. Sixteen minutes. Yeah, yeah. and he won <laughs> he won Best Actor in a Leading Role in a Leading Role, right? For which movie. is crazy. 
Yeah, and uh, also Jodie Foster, by the way, since we we're just talking about the movie, Jodie Foster was also really good, good in that movie. Oh yeah, she was, and fantastic. also won Best Actress in a leading role for that movie. Yeah, that movie ran away with the Oscars in a. Uh, it was one of those surprise Oscar hits. Yeah. Like people didn't expect it to be this runaway, runaway um, Oscar contend, even a contender. And <laughs> yeah, it was so good. So yeah, good. it's. And yeah, Anthony Hopkins, I mean, he is a great actor in general. Like no one's arguing there. He he always puts his all into it. And this is just his role and he made it his, and it's, he's great. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, okay, moving on. Next one up, I've got, uh, I think my only, outside of Linda Blair, my only other child. And that is Heather O'Rourke from Poltergeist. For being such a little kid. She just absolutely <laughs> brought that to life. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And, you know, she was, it's tragic, you know, the stuff that, that happened with her and her dying so young. Yeah. But her in that role, and that's, she's the one that, well, a lot of people remember Zelda Rubenstein. But when you, when you think about scary kid actors, you know, you think of Haley Joe Osment in The Sixth Sense. And a lot of people would bring up Heather O'Rourke. They might not know her name, but they would be like Carol Ann or that kid from uh, Poltergeist yeah. because she's just such a such an innocent presence who becomes, you know, corrupted by the. She doesn't even become corrupted. She just gets taken away by this evil, evil force. Yeah. You know, we'll later learn on she, a bunch she's of She's not really creepy, but kind of is because she's like she's not a, a villain in any form and she's not creepy in herself as much as she talks to the ghosts and sits in the middle of the night, sits at the static TV, touches it, and then is a little bit creepy when she says that they're here. Yeah. But mostly she's she's such a cute, innocent child. There's there's these scenes of her having fun, uh, them playing when they uh, when they make the slide out of this one point where you can uh, yeah. slide along the house. And uh, she's, she's having actual fun in that scene. And... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but She's overall great. it's yeah, it's a good one. It's um For sure. All right. What do you got up uh, next? Um let me see. What else do I have? Um I got uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I've got that one. It's actually my next one up. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I picked it. <laughs> yeah. He's he, he's I mean he's nothing like the character in the book. <laughs> Very different but, from the book. And I was almost thinking about not including him, actually, because in the end, isn't that what Jack Nicholson always does, this kind of character? Yeah. <laughs> yes and no, because you got to think of the the timing of it all. You know, so I'm going to look, because uh, Shining was, what, 80? Yeah, I think 1980 sharp. Yeah, so I'm looking what um, what he would have had kind of leading up to this point. So, and even after, like, The Postman always rings twice, which is great. Uh, Terms of Endearment. But leading up to it, let's take a look. Going South, I've never seen. The Last Tycoon. Um, so you had 75, you had Cuckoo's Nest, which in some ways is a lot of the same. He plays, but really, I mean, the big ones before that, you had Cuckoo's Nest, you had Chinatown, where I don't ever think you saw him, you know, Easy Rider, which was almost a, a little over a decade before. But you never saw him, I don't feel, go full crazy like that. You had, I mean, some stuff in Cuckoo's Nest, you 
you had some of that with him kind of flipping out and losing his mind on Louise Fletcher. <coughs> Excuse me. But yeah, I think in, in The Shining, and it was some of the stuff when he's, the, the scene where I'm always like, man, that's nuts, is when he's just sitting there at the computer, or at, not a computer, at, at the, the typewriter, typewriter, and he's just staring off into space. And he's just got that, when he's seeing the vision of Danny, I think in the labyrinth, I want to say yeah. that was around that part, or somewhere close to there. But when you see him just staring into into no man's land, or was that when he was in the room? I think he might have been in the room on the bed, sitting on the edge of the bed. And then Danny comes in and he's, I'd never hurt you, Dan. Don't worry about it, Danny. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, his full breakdown at the end. My personal favorite performance from that movie is when Wendy's on the other side of the refrigerator door and you get that camera shot from the floor looking right up at his face. And he's kind of he's like, I'm hurt real bad, Wendy. And but he's saying this. You hear this voice coming out, but he's manipulating his face in a way that's contrary to the voice that you're hearing. You can see the menace and like, get me out of here right now. I'm going to kill you. But his voice is giving you something on the other end of the spectrum of yeah. compassion and please help me. Uh, but yeah, his performance as Jack Torrance is just unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I mean, we got to say uh, Shelley Duvall also is really good, but that's almost uh, another uh, Tippi Hedron, uh right. kind of case where she I, isn't she now suing the uh, Kubrick's estate or something because he broke her so that she went crazy after that movie um let's see the kubrick estate <laughs> which wouldn't surprise me i mean kubrick was an intense dude <laughs> yeah and uh stanley kubrick yeah. so this well this is from a few years ago um but it looked like somebody was shelly duvall battles kubrick over the shining yeah it looks like this is a few few years back but it okay. did you know, it was, man, it was, it was rough for her. Yeah. It was very rough for her. And which but sucks. She, she had, she did a great performance in that movie for sure. I always liked her in Popeye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Playing olive oil. But yeah, she had a great performance, but man, Kubrick, he was an intense dude, man. He yeah. was a, uh, same way Hitchcock was a pretty intense guy. And if you watch a lot of the behind the scenes stuff with Nicholson getting into character, like jumping on the bed and screaming and, and going nuts. So, yeah. All right. So my last one I've got on my list is Jocelyn Donahue. And for her performance in the house of the devil, more of a oh. modern, the, yeah, the Ty West flick. I think yeah. she, you know, for the satanic panic kind of revival movie that house of the devil was, she, carried so much of that movie on her own. And I really like Jocelyn Donahue. She's done some, um, some really great stuff, but in this one and the whole movie itself is just good. If anyone listening hasn't, hasn't seen it, it's a great movie, but her kind of playing this down and out. Um, I guess she's not really down and out. She's trying to move out of her place. And so she gets this weird job babysitting somebody's mother upstairs in this house but there's this great sequence of her, you know, putting on her headphones and kind of bebopping around the house and playing pool and stuff like that. She's such a believable, lovable character in that movie. And and for me, that's what what works. You know, that's what you you got to do in order to make something good. 
And she carries so much of this movie as this same character on her own. And it's just one after I'd watched that, I was like, I'm going to watch that again sometime soon. Like she was just so good in it. And I absolutely just loved her in that movie. And so I want to make yeah. sure I put that, put that on my list. Yeah, that, that's true. I, I Now I really want to watch that movie again. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It hasn't been that long since I first watched it. Uh, maybe I'll throw that on today because yeah, I'm not planning on doing much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the last one I got on my list is um, Jeff Goldblum as um in the fly uh, yeah as yeah. the fly basically as yeah. brendel fly but also as like brendel fly, brendel seth, fly. Seth, seth brundle is his name right yeah yeah and i mean he's he's the gold bloom but he's also just uh really good as uh that character especially like he acts that transition of becoming a fly that's where yeah. he shines yeah, yeah with the the erratic movements and the quick twitches and yeah, he. I mean, I don't know how long that dude sat and studied flies, but he looks like someone who's becoming a fly. Yeah, and yeah, he's 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 great in that, and uh, yeah, but he's just a great actor in general. So, uh, and he's he's kind of playing what he always plays, but because the the whole thing of going over into the fly, that's where he really shines, like you yeah. said, and that's that's the important part of of why I picked him here. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that one. I'm 100% with you, and Goldblum is the fly. And uh, one honorable mention that I wanted to put out there just because I love the performance so much is uh, Jill Banner as Virginia in Spider Baby. She's <laughs> she's so creepy. She's so creepy. And, yeah, I wonder if she's actually an actress or just, like, actually a creepy girl. Yeah, if that's, <laughs> if that's who she was. Yeah, yeah, she was uh, Spider Baby, if you've never seen it, or The Maddest Story Ever Told. Some great names in that. Um, you know, you got Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, Sid Haig is in there as well. But she was, yeah, it looks, I'm looking at her credits right now, and it doesn't look like she, doesn't look like she had a lot. She really just, um, and do they even have, yeah, 67 was Spider Baby, and then her last thing, looks like she did TV from 68 on that's all she ever did after spider baby was some tv stuff yeah, yeah she was so good if you're wondering what she looks like she's the face of our um oh yeah she's the uh, face of the thumbnail that we use on instagram episodes yeah <laughs> yeah always been a big fan of that all right man well that was a lot of fun it was a good time yeah, it was and we we talked about some great actors i think <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, if there's anything we missed or you want to let us know, you know, who some of your favorite horror performances are, you can send us a message at ihohpodcast at gmail.com or any of the social medias, ihohpodcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can uh, get into contact with us there. And thank you again to Phil for throwing the idea out there. It was uh, yeah. a lot of fun to dig into. Um, so that's it, man. That's all I got. So if you want to jump on the Apple podcast, leave a rate and review. That would be wonderful of you to do. And for the International House of Horrors, I am Joe Murrow. And I'm Josh. And we'll be back next week with more things terrible, horrible, brutal, bloody, gory, and the macabre.